Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Discovery. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn why robots should look like cartoons with robotics researcher Ruth Aylett. And why more access to an opioid antidote doesn't make people think heroin is safe. We'll also answer a listener question about why dishwashers make knives less sharp. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Human-like robots just feel creepy. And there's a reason for that. Today, Ruth Aylett is back to explain why making robots look human is the wrong approach and why making them more cartoonish is a better idea. Ruth Aylett is a professor of computer science at Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh, who's been a robotics researcher for 30 years. And we asked her, is it a good idea to make robots appear human? So researchers do have different views on this. So again, citing the Japanese case, you'll see a lot of robotic design there, which is intended to look very, very human indeed, uncannily so. Um, We talk about the uncanny valley, where the behaviour of a robot doesn't match the humanness of its appearance. You can make a robot look quite human with a latex skin and glass eyes, a face that moves, nice glossy hair and all the rest of it. But if it then moves a bit jerkily, it's kind of upsetting because you don't expect it, yeah? because it looks human, you think it should move much better. So movement is a more difficult problem than appearance in robotics, but a lot of the impression you give people when they're interacting with a robot is down to the movement and not just the appearance of the thing. So some people would say, oh, we should make it look as human as possible. I don't believe that, and my co-author doesn't either. We would argue that you should make it look just human enough to make people feel comfortable but not so human that the inadequate behaviour from a human point of view is going to upset people. So I would go for cartoon-like appearances. In fact, in the book, we talk about something we call a social affordance. I don't need to come across this idea of an affordance. So it's a really interesting academic idea, not, not ours, been around a long time. So this is the idea that when we make artefacts ourselves, we give people clues about how to operate them. So doorknobs, for instance, are round, so you turn them. Or if they're levers, you press them up and down. That's an affordance, and we can see this by looking at them. We get a a clear indication by looking at them what we're supposed to do with these things. And much the same is true of a robot appearance as well, except it's a social affordance. What kind of creature is this robot? If it looks too human, you're going to assume it can do human things. They interact in a human way, and you're going to be very disappointed when that doesn't work properly. If it looks more like a dog, then the bar is rather lower, okay? No, it won't behave like a real dog, but it'll be dog-like enough for you to feel you have some idea how it's behaving and what it's going to do. So your social expectations are driven by the way a robot looks and the way that it moves, So you're right, it's a very important issue, and it's not one that everyone agrees on by any means. We're still exploring the space, you might say. So this is why we see so many robots that look like cartoon characters or are headless or just don't don't look human at all. It's because it's probably better for us. Absolutely. And it's true that cartoon characters, on the whole, are much better. We do have social expectations of cartoon characters as well but they're not at the level of ordinary humans. So cartoon characters are kind of jolty. Their animation might jerk a bit. Their mouths are not perfectly synchronized with what they say. 
but that doesn't bother us. Whereas if you ever see a newsreader who's a little bit out of sync with their soundtrack, have you ever seen this? Usually with foreign correspondents in the field. You notice that right away, <laughs> okay? And that's why dubbing is also quite annoying for people where the mouth is making quite different shapes from the, the language that's coming out. In cartoon characters, that never bothers us. I mean, does Donald Duck lip sync? He's a duck, for Christ's sake. He doesn't have to, you know? He's got a beak. <laughs> cartoon robots are cuter anyway. Again, that was Ruth Aylett, a professor of computer science at Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh and co-author of the new book, Living with Robots, What Every Anxious Human Needs to Know. You can find a link to her book and more in today's show notes. The new millennium kicked off a crisis in America, the opioid epidemic. Deaths from opioid overdoses have quadrupled since 1999. A record nearly 75,000 people died from overdose between March 2020 and 2021 alone. But there is some good news. As opioid addiction has spread across the nation, so has access to an effective antidote, naloxone. That means more lives can be saved, even by everyday people like you and me. Some people have argued that wider access to naloxone would encourage more opioid use, but now, a new study quells those concerns. First, some background on opioids. This group of drugs acts on opioid receptors in the brain to reduce feelings of pain and create a sensation of euphoria. Some opioids are legally prescribed to treat pain, like morphine and oxycodone. But there are also illegal opioids, like heroin, which this study focused on. With enough use over time, it can get harder for people to feel pleasure from anything other than opioids. It also takes more opioids to feel good, which is why overdose is so common. And this is where the wonder drug naloxone comes in. Heroin use causes breathing to slow or stop. Naloxone helps breathing restart by knocking opioids off of the brain's receptors. It's administered as a nasal spray or through injection into the thigh, like an EpiPen. It's inexpensive, it works fast, and it's super effective, as long as it's given within 90 minutes of overdose. It's also non-addictive and totally safe for the person administering it. At first, only doctors and certain emergency responders could give naloxone to reverse an overdose. But now, nearly every state has expanded access to people like you and me. But in the process, some politicians feared easy access to the antidote would make heroin use seem less dangerous or even appealing. But national data shows that's not the case. From 2004 to 2016, the National Survey on Drug Use and Health asked nearly 885,000 people aged 12 and up how risky they thought heroin use was. Naloxone's availability to the public expanded rapidly in that time. Researchers matched people's responses to their local access laws and found that the laws didn't change their view of how risky heroin was. Even heroin users agreed that it's risky. Naloxone has helped lay people save tens of thousands of lives. So, if anything, the only side effect to expanding access to the antidote is fewer senseless deaths. We got a listener question from Jen in Atlanta, who asks, Why do dishwashers dull knives? I know putting your knives in the dishwasher will dull the blade, but I don't know why. Is it the heat, the detergent, the water jets, or all of the above? Great question, Jen. I've always wondered this, too. The answer, it turns out, is all of the above. An active dishwasher is a hot, violent, corrosive place. 
And when you've got something like a knife whose entire utility is based upon one very thin, razor-sharp edge, combining the two is just asking for trouble. First off, there's the potential for collisions. The intense blasts of water can knock your knife around and cause dings and chips in the blade, along with damage to other dishes and the dishwasher itself. Plus, there's the long period of time your knife is exposed to water. You probably know you shouldn't leave knives to soak in the sink because they can rust, and the same is true for a steamy session in the dishwasher. Also, the high water temperatures can bend and warp your knife and reduce its precision. But you asked this question of a science podcast, so here's the super science-y reason. Dishwasher detergent can and will corrode metal. The exact reason for this depends on the type of knife you're dealing with. While you might assume that stainless steel knives are safe from rust and corrosion, that's not exactly true. Stainless steel is stainless because of a protective layer of chromium, and lots of chemicals can break that layer down to reveal the raw steel beneath which is a haven for rust. Dishwasher detergent is full of these chemicals. Chlorine is a big one that's especially unfriendly to stainless steel. If you're talking about carbon steel knives, you're in even bigger trouble. These knives don't have a protective layer. That's why manufacturers often suggest coating them in a layer of mineral oil after they're washed. They rust easily, so a trip through the dishwasher is about the worst thing you can do. Ceramic knives are most at risk of the stuff I mentioned earlier. They're delicate, and they can chip and break if they get knocked around. So don't put your knives in the dishwasher. If the heat and collisions don't dull them, the detergent will. Thanks for your question, Jen. If you have a question, send it in to curiosity at discovery.com or leave us a voicemail at 312-596-5208. Before we recap what we learned today, I just want to make a quick note that there will not be new episodes of Curiosity Daily this Monday or Tuesday. December is a weird month. We'll be back Wednesday with another brand new episode that, of course, you will love, but I'm afraid you're going to have to start the week without us. I know, these things happen. But like I said, there's still a lot of cool stuff to look forward to, so stay tuned. And now we're going to give you a sneak peek at what to expect on Curiosity Daily next week when we are here. Okay, so now let's recap what we learned today. Starting with the fact that some researchers argue that robots should be made to look as cartoony as possible. That's partly based on an idea called social affordance. And affordance is the way that things we make give people clues on how to operate them. Like how doorknobs are round so you know to turn them. And this also applies to robots. They have a social affordance that makes you ask, what kind of robot is this? And your social expectations will be a lot different if the robot looks like a dog versus a human, and by the way that it moves. When a robot looks too human, you might assume that it can do all the same things a human does. And as we've learned, robots are not as capable as humans. And they won't be for quite some time. It's funny the way that people are already responding to situations where the robots don't seem to match their purpose. Like a lot of police forces have started releasing robot dogs And a lot of people really, really hate the robot dogs because they're not cute, cuddly dogs. They're just robots. Right. There's at least that cute factor when you see a canine unit. But a robot dog is just just steel and terror. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And we also learned that greater access to the opioid antidote known as naloxone does not make people perceive heroin as less risky. Not even heroin users. That's according to a study that measured people's perceptions of heroin over eight years while naloxone access was expanding. Naloxone helps reverse an overdose 
by knocking opioids off of the brain's receptors, which can help people start breathing again. It comes as either a nasal spray or an injectable like an EpiPen, and it's cheap, works fast, and is super effective within 90 minutes of an overdose. And in a lot of places, it's legal to be administered by anyone, not just medical professionals. Yeah, and a quick PSA, if you're interested in keeping some naloxone on hand just in case you encounter someone experiencing an overdose, first, what you want to do is check your local laws to make sure it's actually legal to purchase it. And then you want to check your local insurance laws to make sure that your medical or life insurance can't penalize you for possessing the drug or getting a prescription for it. There's been a lot of progress in expanding access to this life-saving medication, but there's still a ways to go. And I've definitely heard of people's insurance policies either penalizing them or cutting them off completely because buying naloxone makes them look like a heroin user. And that's not the case at all. So definitely check on that before you take any action. Ugh. This is like one of those stories where it's like, okay, we as a society don't want people to use heroin. How do we stop that? And then some people are just like, well, let's just take away like medicines for it, right? And then put people more in danger. And that, this is not how to do that. I think we've learned very clearly over the last two years that when you tell a person they have to do something or cannot do something, that is not very effective. Just look at vaccination rates, right? So just because you want people to, you know, you want to say no doesn't mean that saying no is the, the most effective way, uh, you know, to save lives. It's, uh, you know, there's never a perfect solution. But uh, reducing access to life-saving drugs doesn't seem like a good solution. So I'm glad that we're hopefully working more on expanding it. Yeah, everything, every intervention that we put into place needs to take into account human behavior. We can't just wish these things away. We have to come up with ways for people to do the things they're already going to do, but do them safely. That's what I think. I agree. And we also learned that dishwashers dull knives for all sorts of reasons. The hot water warps the metal, the intense jets bang them around and cause dings and chips in the blade, and the detergent wears away at the metal and makes it more likely to rust. So, hand wash only. I mean, unless you don't care and you want to manually sharpen your knives later, you know, we're not the boss of you. But for my part, I like to keep things simple, so. Well, doling is only one thing that the dishwasher does. You can't fix a warp with a sharpener. You can't fix rust with a sharpener, you know. Are you trying to be the boss of me? <laughs> yes, I'm trying to be the boss of you. All right. No, there was a while where we had we had a bunch of steak knives that we we didn't really care about, so we would put those in the dishwasher, and they they got dull and useless so quickly. So, and then I bought some new steak knives, and now we are hand washing them only, but they're serrated, and I don't like them as much. I don't know. It's knives are such a personal thing. Yeah, it's like buying shoes. How is it like buying shoes, Cody? Because it's personal to you. Yeah, and shoes don't go in the dishwasher. Your shoes don't go in the dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on! The writer for today's Naloxone story was Steffi Drucker. Our managing editor is Ashley Hamer, who is also a writer and audio editor on today's episode. Our producer and lead audio editor is Cody Goff. Have a great weekend. Then tell your robot assistant to play us again Monday so you can learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. 